our special guest today is returning with us gratefully. Jay Ann Seltzer is an American political pollster who is the president of the Des Moines, Iowa-based polling firm Seltzer & Company, which she founded in 1996. And Anne, I thought it would be great to have you on the call today because you you completed a rather lengthy survey or a, a series of poll results that appeared in the Des Moines Register. And I always think it's good to acknowledge uh, an entity like the Register for providing this information to its readers. Uh, legacy newspapers like the Register get a lot of a lot of bashing for cutting this and that, but it's a significant and it's a significant investment that they make in informing their readers. And I just I just want to acknowledge that and uh, hooray for them for doing so. And and it's it's good to have you on the call to explain what you discovered in the latest series of Iowa poll results. Also, want to hear from you and about the Grinnell poll that you're a part of and how they differ if they do what the what the differentiators are and of course we we always welcome comments and questions from our participants so and why don't we introduce you and have you take it from the top and uh, welcome and explain what what the big key takeaways were from the last Iowa poll results how's that Okay, well, I'd be happy to do that. Um, you probably most of the people who are on this call have known about the Iowa poll for a long time, so I won't go into the history of that. I do. My plan today is to walk you through the top line results in the same way that I do when we first get data. So you kind of get a pollster's look at how do we decide what's a big number, what's a small number, or do we see trends here? So I'll do that. I'll share my screen in a moment. Um, I wanted to mention that the Grinnell College National Poll, the one, the only thing they have in common is that I do, I conduct both of those polls. And uh, a few years ago, I got the idea that this Quinnipiac poll, who I, I'm friendly with the Quinnipiac poll out of a small college in Connecticut, um, I read somewhere that it had favorably uh, helped their admissions numbers and that they were getting more applications. And I just thought, wow, I've, okay, so I've met the then president of Grinnell College and he had a background in polling in addition to being an MD. So I called on him and I said, hey, what do you think about a Grinnell poll that would be national in scope? And we put it, he, long story short, um, it came to be. Um, and it's twice a year. At some point, we had envisioned it would be a quarterly poll, but they're still kind of in that experimenting mode. And the, initially, just getting it launched, we had to do a lot of building on campus to engender support. And I give great credit to Peter Hansen in the political science department um, for figuring out how the faculty can participate in this in a way that doesn't make it crazy. I called my friend at, at Quinnipiac and I said, so what's the role of faculty in your poll? He said, oh no, oh no, there's an iron curtain around the poll. If you get faculty involved, they will kill it. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> yeah, but Grinnell College wasn't going to do anything that didn't have uh, pedagogic um, 
value for their students. And so there are students who are involved and they submit questions and I workshop it, them with them. And, and then also there's, uh, there's become a more limited faculty involvement with the new president and her focus on the health of American democracy. So that's not, that doesn't, that's not as appealing to the art history people as, as uh, some other polls might be. So that, that's just the background of that. But I, we did release a poll in the beginning of March, and I thought, um, and I'm going to invite you at any time to interrupt me and ask questions, because otherwise I'll just kind of march through it. I just thought I'd give you, and Kathy Obradovich would know what this looks like. I, I show you what we call a filled-in questionnaire, um, and that as we gather, now we do that virtually, we look through it to say, okay, so what does all of this mean? And so let me share my screen here to get this going. So the first, we, we give all of the information like what's the margin of error and how many people participated and what were the dates so that every reporter has the basics there. What you don't see, I don't think, what's in terms of what's published in the paper or what is included in online is all of the tracking information that we provide so that we can put the current data into context. We begin most polls with right track, wrong track questions for the nation and, uh, and then for the state. And I thought, okay, so what happened here? We took a look and our right direction number is not very good. It's, it's not the lowest it's ever been. That would have been in July of last year. Um, but 18 is not admirable. And three out of four Iowans saying that they think the nation is headed in the wrong direction is meaningful. Again, it's not the highest it's ever been. That June poll last year was big. And we can't, we go back much farther than 2009, but there's only so much that's, and we have other places where we store all of that history, but we've got all of that history. Um, so then I go looking for, well, what has been the high point? When were things better? So in March of 2020, in terms of the nation, 46% said uh, that things were headed in the right direction. And that was arguably, a small number of percentage points ahead, but it was right side up. And that's the only one on this page that is right side up. So the reporter gets an idea of, you know, this is not the worst it's been, but golly, it, it, there are times that things have been better. And then you compare that to what the right direction, wrong track for the state. And you'll see that it's 48% more than say, they say it's right direction more, four points higher than say wrong track. And then I just sort of look through this history to kind of see that it swerves back and forth a bit. But mostly people think it's on the things are headed in the right direction. And this is useful when it comes to evaluating the governor's performance, because the direction of the state um, gets is highly correlated with the reviews of the governor. And again, you sort of look down to, well, where, where, where were the low points? So this is 2010, where the majority of Iowans said that things were headed off, off in the wrong direction. So I show you the, again, we've got all of this tracking information, which is such a great resource. That Cameron Reynolds is governor. She's uh, at 50%. She's been higher 
she's been lower, but mostly she's in the 50% range. And somebody said to me, well, you know, Iowans like their incumbents. And so that's why she was reelected. I said, well, perhaps she was reelected because Iowans like her. And so that when you've got job approval numbers, which are consistently right side up is what we would call it, we're more approved than disapproved. Um, and that's been consistent throughout her governorship. Then you have to say, well, we could have predicted that she would win the, the election last year, but also it says there's a pretty stable um, approval rating. These aren't fantastic approval ratings, um, but they're, they're not bad. If you wanted to have seen fantastic approval ratings, if you look at Chuck Grassley going back to 2009, 75% approved of the job he was doing, then 66%. And then he sort of lived in the 60% range for a long time until recently, uh, where he dipped below the 50% mark and then sort of stayed there. So the poll that we did last October, early October, um, had him underwater, which is unusual for Senator Grassley. Um, and then he's tipped back to being right side up. So again, not the stunning approval numbers that he had in his past, um, but you can see that he's he had some leaner times and now has sort of uh, appeared to turn the corner, perhaps. We'll see it in the next poll. May I inject a question about that particular poll? Please do. Because I remember it was a shocker in the mm. last election cycle that uh, that Grassley would be underwater in October. And as a result, there was just a flood of national money into the race on the GOP side. Was that was was that an early poll for you in terms of your normal cycle or was that about on target that that October what was it, ninth or something like that? Yeah, we typically do one in either late September or early October that is all Iowans, but we gather, we're able to identify the likely voters among them. Um, and then it's not our final poll before the election. So then we do one that releases the Saturday night before the Tuesday election. That That's pretty normal. Okay. Um, should we open it up to questions or do you want to just go ahead and, and, and keep going? I'm, I'm fine either way. What, what's your work more comfortable? If you, if you see questions, just interrupt me. I have a few other things I would show. Yeah, go ahead. Um, go ahead. So the, we wanted to give an early test of some of the Republicans who are making noises and in some case affirming that they are going to be running for president and we chose to look at the, there are sort of, these are favorability numbers. Let me show you the scale up here. So we combine the people who say they're very favorable and mostly favorable, and we combine the mostly unfavorable and very unfavorable uh, to take a look at that. But we wanted to see how, how things are going just among self-identified Republicans. And when we published these numbers, some people thought, well, this is a caucus poll, which it is not. We have not yet mounted a caucus poll where we would screen only for people who say they will definitely or probably attend the Iowa Republican caucuses next year. But it gives us a little bit, so it's not a perfect representation of that, but it gives us a sense of how the three people that we measured are comparing among self-identified Iowa Republicans. And with Ron DeSantis, 
he's only got 20 people, 20% 20 of, the, of the Republicans who said they didn't know him well enough to offer a rating. And the, his you know, positive rating is really quite positive at 74%. Nikki Haley has 40% of Iowa Republicans who say they don't know enough about her to say whether their feelings are favorable or unfavorable. So you know, you're handicapping this race, you say, well, she's got a profile problem. She's got a visibility program problem. And that's very hard for people to say they're going to vote for you if they really don't know you. So um, still, she gets 53% favorable. And then Donald Trump, who, who had uh, overall numbers with everybody that I can show you. But then we pulled him out just with registered Republicans. And it's 80%. Of course, nobody doesn't know him. So he's got more percentage points to distribute across the favorable to unfavorable. So it's kind of meaningful that 18% of Iowa Republicans say their feelings toward him are unfavorable. The other thing I thought was interesting in the overall numbers with um, former President Trump is that the very favorable number was 20%, and that is down two points. It's been declining for a bit um, recently, and that his very unfavorable number went up two points. So it, it was a little like um, the a little bit of luster off the uh, off the gleam and a little bit of adding sort of the, the switch there. Let's see. Jim Sayre has a question in the chat. He says, following the release of your polls, we often see and read comments regarding the number of people surveyed, particularly by those who are dissatisfied with results. Can you speak a bit about your methodology, including sample size and statistical mm -hmm. validity? Do you want to save that or do you want to take that question now? Let me just finish up with Trump and then I'll... Then okay. I'll do the methodology. So there's a question that we've asked a couple of times, which is if he were the nominee, would you definitely vote for him? Probably vote for him. Probably might or might not, or probably not. So that's Donald Trump, again, with just self-identified Republicans. And we asked this in June of, la of two years ago, and 69% said they would definitely vote for him. That's now down to 47%. So I, we're, we sort of, as we, the story comes together, when you see all these little indicators that says the support for Trump is slipping just a little bit. So let me go back up to the top of this document um, where it says that we interviewed 805 Iowa adults. We use live, interview, live interviewers to do it. We uh, purchase a sample of random digit phone numbers, both landline and mostly these days, cell phone uh, numbers. And, and it's a, so it's a random ask. What, what our, our goal is, is that every adult Iowan age 18 and over has an equal chance to be contacted by our poll. That's the science behind it. Um, and then once we get the data in, because there are differences in who uh, agrees to participate, we do some modest weighting, and you'll see right here, it was weighted by age and by sex and by congressional district. And that is what we're trying to make happen is the 805 people that we've talked to represent an accurate cross-section 
of Iowa adults age 18 and over. And we, of course, are collecting other uh, demographic information. And this is the part that is, I'm not gonna show it to you today, but it's, it's the part that makes you believe in polling because we ask those same demographic questions, poll after poll after poll. And it's very rare that we see meaningful deviation from that. So we feel confident that we've hit our mark in terms of being uh, showing an accurate cross-section of all Iowans. The margin of error is, is, is something that is related to sampling error only. There are other kinds of error that creep into your surveys, but the sampling error would say, if you conducted this study 20 times and asked the same questions using the same method, 19 out of those times, you would not have a difference of greater than plus or minus 3.5 percentage points. And, and we surely see that. Again, we've got demographics that, that are not the reflection of a changing opinion. As we've already just seen, opinions do change. Um, but we feel we, we have high confidence and, and um, it, we couldn't end up with an accurate prediction of elections and something we're known for if we weren't getting an accurate cross-section of our meaningful universe. Laura Bellin has her hand raised. Laura, of course, is a, a blogger who writes a column not only on Bleeding Heartland, but also on Substack and covers politics in the Iowa legislature. Oh, Laura, I lost you. Where'd you go? One here. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, I lowered, I lowered my hand because I thought you were calling on me, but I'm here. I, I put it back up again. Okay. Yeah. Go right ahead. What's your question? So regarding the approval ratings, I've read some things that just generally we're living in an age of much greater polarization. And maybe some of it is related to the growth of Fox News and conservative talk radio and MSNBC. But I've seen speculation that we're just not going to see presidents, senators, governors having the kind of approval ratings that we used to see for incumbents. I mean, I remember, as you were mentioning, that not just in your poll, but in many polls, Chuck Grassley's approval rating was often in the 60s when I started writing this website in the 2000s. And it's just not going to happen. And that governor, somebody like Governor Reynolds, who is somewhat polarizing, I mean, she's just not going to get much. Her ceiling is lower than say governors of the past. And I just was interested in your perspective on that. No, I, I think that is very fair. We're living in a completely different world with different exposure to different information. So depending upon what media sources you rely on, you're going to, to um, know certain things about the good parts of a, an elected official and somebody else is going to know more about the bad parts. And so I think that's fair. We have another question from Bryce Oakley, who served in the Iowa legislature and also was a member of the staff of Governor Robert D. Ray and um, most recently a lobbyist who's now retired. Bryce, go ahead. Uh, and there's a lot of ways to ask this question. And I think we've had this discussion before, so I'll make the question short. Um, have you ever, or can you explain the way you prevented it from happening? where a particular, you decide sometime in advance when you're going to do your poll, you've got to kind of get it put together. And an issue explodes just about the time you're doing your <laughs> polling that might substantially affect uh, some of the questions that you're asking, approval ratings or whatever. 
how do you deal with the uncertainties of of, uh, of issues or of events maybe skewing the results you're going to get over the period of your uh, questioning? Well, uh, that's a very good question. And I can't, I'm trying to think of a time when that happened recently, and I'm not having a, a very good example. If something, I mean, this is always the trick, is that you want your field time to be um, more than one day, but not so many days that you risk something happening while you're in the field. The, if something happened on the second night when we were in the field, we might decide, okay, we're going to throw away the first night and then we'll, we'll catch up. That hardly ever happens. And um, certainly not as budgets have gotten tighter, nobody's willing to throw away anything. But, the, but sometimes we can have, um, well, here's what the poll findings were before and here's what they were after. And so that might become part of the reporting. Uh, the reporting, if something were to happen, would always be, I'm, I, and Kathy Obradovich, I think, would back me up to say, well, we would report that that happened while we were in the field so that the reader would understand. Um, I don't know that there's been a time that we just pulled a question because we thought the results were, we, we tend to look for ways to find meaning when something like that happens. Thank you. And do you write the questions? Do you um, accept verbiage of questions from your client? How does that come about? Oh, it's a team effort. And some of these questions, like are things headed in the right direction along the track, preceded me um, b before the register. And, you know, do you approve or disapprove? I mean, I think Georgia Gallup may have written the question for right direction, <laughs> wrong track at the inception of the Iowa poll. But then there are some things that then favorability, um, maybe I brought that feeling thermometer to the register. Um, but we definitely work together. The reporters and the editors are the experts on what's going on at the state house. And so if we're going to test some of these legislative issues, they, they know what is being proposed, what the language is. And then it's a matter of sometimes that that language is not very user-friendly. That is, we need the language to work not only to reflect what the legal, the, the legislative proposal actually is, but we need it to be understandable to the respondent. We need for the interviewer to be able to say it in a, in a way that isn't awkward. So that's, that's very definitely what we spend a good couple of weeks working on and going back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes we'll find a question that we didn't, the next time it comes around, we didn't have as much information and now we have a better way to deal with it. Sometimes we find ways of shortening, um, but the, the trick is always, do you, you want tracking information or do you want a better question? Because sometimes that happens. When I was on the staff of the register, they wanted to pull on a thing called a local option sales tax. And I said, okay, explain it to me because I haven't heard of it. And we decided we couldn't. We couldn't pull on something that people didn't know about without taking, you know, a big paragraph. And that's expensive because that takes up more time. Now I think we could we could do polling on local option sales tax. That sort of leads into the next part that I wanted to walk you through, which was a question about legislative issues. So we have several of these that we wanted to, to get to. So including the 
uh, voucher, not voucher system, but the um, tuition system that the governor proposed, in fact, ran on uh, for her election, and as well as other things. But the first thing I look at as, as the pollster is, well, here's all of these issues. They pretty much represent the Reynolds agenda, and they pretty much show at least the plurality, and in most cases, a majority of people who are aligning with her legislative issues. So that says what she proposed to do and has in fact done in many cases was endorsed by a majority of Iowans. Okay, but wait, there's a couple of exceptions like the $7,600 per student in taxpayer funded education, 62% oppose. It's almost a two to one margin in terms of opposition. Um, and even though we reported this on March, it was enacted into law shortly after this. So if you think that polls sway things, not always, not Did that always. Surprise yeah. you, Anne? Did that result surprise you when you saw it? Well, when we had measured something like it before, again, this, this was a new fine-tuned proposal this time. So the language was different. But when we did it in the previous March, 52% were opposed. And when we did it uh, the, the March before that, the plurality were opposed. So what was big here was the size of the opposition, how big that was. And again, that helps the journalists who are crafting leads to their stories about that, that, this, that, there, there, that was a growing concern. The other place where a majority disagreed opposed the idea was requiring parental consent for a student to check out school library books flagged as inappropriate by a school district anywhere in the state. 53% opposed that more, 10 points more than the 43% who favored it. So those were the two exceptions from this list. Now we had to treat um, use of eminent domain differently because we needed more language but still this was another place where there were more opposing and by the biggest margin of any legislative issue that we tested uh, opposing the the um, right to use eminent domain for companies seeking to build carbon capture pipelines and i'll just close this part by and happy to take more questions that we continue to chart the iowans attitudes about abortion and should it be legal or illegal? So this legal in all or most cases combines uh, that we broke that out, steady at about six and 10 and illegal in most or all cases, cases steady at about one and three. More questions? Okay, Bob Leonard had a question earlier. Bob, I don't, uh, because the screen sharing, I can't see the whole the whole group, if you're still on the call. Uh, yeah, I'm still here. Okay, go ahead, you're up next. Okay, thank you. Um, I have a question about what seemed to me abrupt um, turns in polling and your polls at the last minute that you caught the reality and a lot, of the, a lot of other people didn't. I mean, it looked like Biden was in play in 2020. Um, everybody thought so and then it, Right, at, even Biden thought so because he was here like a week or two before the election, and uh, you showed like an eight point, uh, like he was eight point behind points behind I think right before the election, and then the precipitous drop in Tom Miller's numbers and um, 
also in Admiral Franken's numbers right before the election in the week or so before, this sort of related to Bryce's question, I think. And I don't know of any news events that would have caused those things, but any thoughts on those? Well, thank you for that question. It's, um, it's something that we will never have a perfect answer for why that happens. But if you know anything about campaigns, they are the, those final two weeks, three weeks heading into election is where the majority of the effort is put in terms of getting people out um, and getting them to get their votes cast. I don't know if the poll that we um, that we published that showed either Biden having a chance or Admiral Franken having a chance or Tom Miller looking weaker than we'd ever measured him. Um, and we didn't measure the treasurer, but that might've been there as well. Um, I can't say for certain that the poll had an impact, but it sure, sure, surely to anybody reading this would say, this isn't the way we've seen this before. That Tom Miller was all but attorney general for life and that he'd run against Brenna Bird previously. So, uh, and it, she obviously has become better known. It's with a new administration. And so um, it, it's, it happens. I, I'm not saying there's a causal relationship between a wake-up poll that says, you know, you, you better pay attention to this. This is not something you're going to be able to coast through. If, if that, does that try to answer your question? I'm gonna I'm gonna look for another document here that I think you'd find interesting that's related to this. So hang on. It'd be fun to match the amount of dollars coming into advertising and uh, with the poll results. Right. So this uh, I would like to go into show mode. How do I get it there? Oh, there you are. So we pay attention to uh, hang on. The Secretary of State and what they're doing in terms of, uh, and Laura and I have have talked about this. Okay. Speaking of the Secretary of State, I understand there's another major purge of folks from the voting rolls. How do you how do you manage around that? Well, that's we, it's a subject of a lot of conversation. I'm trying to get this so that this will be full screen, but I'm not gonna be able to get it. So you'll deal with the fact that you can see all the PowerPoint here. Okay. Um, we had a lot of conversation because he's, they've changed the definition of what is an active voter. And we use, if you, if you are an active registered voter, that sometimes is our sample, our meaningful universe. Um, so we're, we, we're continuing to ponder that. But this is showing, um, something that is interesting to me, which is that people talk about Iowa being 30-30-30 in terms of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. That's their registration. But Republican turnout exceeds where their representation in the, in the voter registration. So any polls that are based on registered voters are going to weight their data to look like this. And the reality of who actually votes is doesn't look so people end up being surprised because they're more um, um, 
Republicans proportionately who show up. Um, let's see if I have anything else here by age, by sex, um, age and sex by by membership. Those are those are a little hard to understand, but this is in presidential election years, and you can see that not so long ago the turnout for Republicans and Democrats was about the same, and then Republicans since 1992 have outperformed Democrats in terms of who shows up. And you might say, well, that's four percentage points. Isn't that close to your margin of error? There is no margin of error in these numbers. These are hard numbers. I've put it in the form of percentage, um, but they represent real numbers. And for, and for midterms, also with an even wider gap. So these statistics are, are readily available, and we just bothered to put it in a chart form. But Democrats have a problem getting a proportionate number of their ranks to turn out. And even if, the, the, and that's been changing in terms of what's the proportionate um, relationship here that Iowa uh, has been banking more registered Republicans than Democrats lately. So this, this explains to me a lot about what happens in Iowa elections. Doesn't it correlate with the efforts to shrink voting uh, time periods and hours and uh, precinct availability and all that that's been going on recently? Well, from from 2018, when those would have been um, the standard things, it did go down for both Republicans and for Democrats. But that doesn't explain the whole uh, difference, the gap in turnout between the two parties. Okay. Richard Bender, you had your hand raised. I don't know if you're still with us, but you would have been up next. I don't see your smiling face, however. If you are with us and would like to ask your question, speak now. Otherwise, Tim Wagner, you need to unmute and then we'll go to Laura Bellin. So when you look at some some of the policy questions that you asked, like legislative issue questions, a number of them are very, very highly partisan where one party is very, very strongly in favor and one party is on the other side and independence may be somewhere in between. Um, Often there's no in the in the news articles discussing the poll. They only provide the general numbers and don't, as often as I think would be logical, provide the party breakouts. Have you going to talk about when you do and when you don't provide party breakouts on issues? So the the other thing that I do in addition to creating this uh, top line document is write uh, a document I call pollster notes. And it's just me sort of saying what I see. And Richard Bender, you are exactly right that there are often, there's a big partisan break and I'm almost always noting it. Um, the decision on what they include in the articles is a matter of the reporting and editorial staff. But I'm gonna say for most of these, I, this, is, this is my perception and I have, didn't go back and do a count. They'll talk about what that what that break is in the body of the story. Sometimes they'll include a graphic that shows that, but sometimes they will not. And just to answer your question, your unasked question, which is, we'll say, you know, we'll we'll end up showing that 
when it comes to um, some a question about gender identity and whether that should be taught in the schools, that very few Republicans favor that and very few Democrats oppose it. And the independents are almost always within the margin of error of the top line data. When it comes to supportive candidates, independents are interesting because what, maybe they're breaking one way or breaking another, but on very few issues do they break. Okay, we have Laura Bellin up next and then Terry Rich, and I have a couple of questions. By the way, Kathy Obradovich, if uh, you've been involved in these polls in the past with Ann, certainly welcome your participation, question, comment, uh, but Laura, you're next. And then I do want to spend a little bit of time with about the Grinnell poll too, Julie. Sure. So within the community of people who follow elections and polls very closely, so I'm just going to describe them as election Twitter, even though not everybody's on Twitter. Obviously, Anne, your polls are so highly regarded, but there is one thing that the Register Iowa poll has been doing the last few election cycles that draws a lot of criticism, and that is these polls, these congressional district level polls that are really just generic ballot where you don't name the candidates. And the margin of error is huge. The sample size is like about 200 per district. And a lot of people really don't feel like those numbers are meaningful. And I guess my question is, why does the register release those numbers? I mean, they don't look anything like congressional district polling that most election watchers are interested in. Well, the question about why do they release them is better handled by an editor. I, my sense of the consensus is that it's kind of a pointing device and all of the information about what the sample size is and how it was conducted is there. Um, and we've been more uh, on the mark and, and with particularly changes, I mean, Ashley Henson was not expected, but our poll said that she was going to win. And I think we have our track record is not bad. I'm sorry. Paul said she was up by, the Republicans are up by 15 and she won by three. But when she was first elected. No, I, when she was first elected, she beat Abby Finkenauer by three. But I think your poll showed that the Republic, the generic Republican was like 15 points ahead in that district. That's my memory. Maybe that's off. Might, might be a little bit off, but I, I don't have that in front of me. But the point being that is that an incumbent was going to be defeated, which is should we not report that that's what the poll looks like? I, it's it's a judgment decision and it's made after we talk things over quite a bit. Okay, Terry Rich and then Tim Wagner. I'm gonna go from the business aspect, Dan. You've had a very successful business. Your business relies on reputation. Um, the uh, folks, that are, many of the folks that are on have worked for the register. The register has been letting people go. You have to worry a little about uh, what happens with newspapers in your business. You have a little perspective on that, but I go with that. Do you ever allow politicians or other companies to tag on when you're doing a survey like this to, to save money for the register, charge them a little less? You could theoretically add a few more politicians so that they can compare directly to your Iowa poll. Uh, <laughs> and if they do a question, uh, it would be easy for them to say, or even if they're doing it on their own to say, hey, uh, would you vote for uh, whatever candidate if they give everybody a million dollars a year? Uh, you know, the way they yeah. would, and then they we, would brag I, about your poll, then that would hurt right. your reputation too. So there's so a couple we, questions in there. So we you. don't. 
do that. In the in the olden days, when the register had its own research shop, they would allow um, advertisers, typically not politicians, um, to tag on to the end of the Iowa poll. I wrote uh, a statement about about conflict of interest and said I would never sell, and and would not find it. Um, a good idea for the register to sell questions for people who wanted to add on. It's not an omnibus poll in that way. But you do do private polling for clients. I do whole polls for private clients. Do you allow them then to use your name in doing that was kind of where I was headed? Um, Yes. They're okay. they're hiring me partly because they they want the their findings to be credible to the audience they're looking to serve. But if so, they write yes, the questions, would it be credible? They don't write the questions. Perfect. Okay, that's what I was. <laughs> there's where I was at, and thank you. Thanks, Terry. Good question, Tim Wagner. You're next, and you are on mute. There you go. I can't hear you though. Can you turn your volume up, Tim? Uh, you're still muted. Can you hear me now? Yep, yeah. there we go. Go right, right. ahead. Good. Sorry about that. Um, my question goes back to uh, the polling that you did regarding the school voucher bill uh, that showed a fairly high uh, level of opposition to that bill and Governor Reynolds still pushed it through. It reminded me of a political cartoon I'm sure we've all seen where there's a woman standing in front of a group of about a dozen look like male judges and the chair of the board is saying something to the effect that we understand your concerns, we just don't care. And I'm wondering that polling number from from the, the, from the voucher school bill, are you seeing a change in uh, some elected officials in terms of simply because they've got such a strong majority that whatever the issue is, whether it's polling for their candidacy or polling for an issue, is they just simply don't care? Is that more frequent than we used to see before? Or what do you think is going on? I, I, I don't know that I could concur with you that it's a matter of elected officials. I don't pretend to know what's in their heart that they don't care. I think what has happened with the strong majorities in the Iowa State House and a, and a governor of all the same party, this is an opportunity to make their agenda that they all believe that they were elected on the basis of to put to bring that to fruition. Very good, thank you. Good question, thanks, Tim. We have a call a question in the chat from Pat Martin, who asks. Um, at first, she makes a statement that she rarely answers a call if it's an unknown number, that she wonders if you uh, the callers identify themselves as associated with the Iowa poll when you sample. Yes, when when not when we sample, but when um, when we place the call. So somebody has got to pick up the phone and it would be an out of area number or something bland like that. But the first thing we say is, hello, I'm calling from the Iowa poll. And I think that helps us. Um, our, there is nobody in this business whose response rates are brag worthy, um, but we're a few percentage points higher than the overall national average. But it doesn't say, the, the phone doesn't say, or the no. caller ID doesn't say Iowa poll. 
Could, right. could you do that? Would that? Is that technically possible or is there some reason why you don't? No, we work with a commercial phone bank that's based in Utah and they've got their callers calling on behalf of all sorts of clients and not not on the single night would all of them be working on our project. So the reality of trying to do that is more complicated and we've okay. looked into it. Okay. And they and they've tested it against other things and they find that if they say out of area then they're good to go. Can we turn briefly to the Grinnell poll, Julie? Absolutely, I'd love to. So I I have on my screen the same kind of headline, but with a little bit of Grinnell things going on here. Um, this is a survey of over a thousand people nationwide. And so, as I said before, people think because I'm doing this poll and Grinnell is based in Iowa, that this is just a different version of the Iowa poll. And that's, it's not an Iowa poll. In fact, it's a, it's a national poll, but we do go through the same drill um, and we take a look at things and, and again, sort of seeing where do we see things changing. And this is where the proportion, this is nationally, of all U.S. adults the proportion saying they feel very favorable to President Trump dropped eight points, and the proportion saying they feel very unfavorable um, increased. So the, again, you kind of see a reflection of what's happening, not just in Iowa, but uh, overall. The thing we concentrated on on this poll had to do with uh, education and what's happening with some of the proposals that are going on around the country. And where does the public stand? So they're, they're, again, sort of interested in constitutional and democracy issues and a question about, well, is it appropriate or not appropriate to speak your mind about politics in these situations? And is appropriate for every group we tested except public school teachers in their classrooms? There's a pushback there of people having some resistance. So that interested us. Um, but you get, you know, 92% saying members of the public in a lawful protest should be able to speak their mind. Then we said about material in public school libraries. Is this appropriate or not appropriate? And given that there's been so much conversation about critical race theory, it struck us as interesting that having books on the subject of racism in American society, 76% said that was appropriate in a middle school public, uh, a library in a public middle school. And the only one higher was the Bible at 84%. And the pushbacks, and this is what I thought was in interesting, and then just two other quick things, is that the where there was closer between should or should not be a part of a library had to do with sexual orientation and gender identity. And it made us think that these questions are not yet firmly settled in people's minds. And we saw less, um, just less of that polarization. It's hard to be polarized if you've got 76% saying that, the, that racism in American society is appropriate. It's hard for that to turn out to be all that polarized by party, sure, fewer Republicans, but it was still a majority. You would come to the same conclusion that there's support for that. So that just says to me that we're not settled in terms of these issues. Um, the, the, the question that was my, uh, one of my um, offerings, because I'll dream up some questions and 
Peter Hansen will dream up some questions and then we get together, was a question about which is the greater sin? Would it be, are you worried more that materials that would be harmful potentially to students would remain available in school libraries? Or are you more worried that materials that could be valuable to students would be removed from school libraries? And by more than a two to one ratio, there was more concern about removing library materials than there was about keeping some materials that some students might find offensive or might make them think things that were um, perhaps harmful. And I thought that kind of, that's a big difference there. And that kind of says a way forward for people who are trying to fight against what's going on in public libraries. So I'll, I'll stop with that. Can we add some questions? I have some suggestions. I'm always open. Anybody who wants to email me questions, suggestions, okay. and I bring them before the Iowa Poll Committee and they thumbs up, thumbs down. Okay. Well, it, in that case, Anne, uh, I do have a suggestion. I would love to see that last question you mentioned from the Grinnell poll uh, on a future Iowa poll. I'd, I'd love to know which which Iowa Iowa people think is the greater sin there. Thank you. Absolutely. I'd love to know how many of these parents of of, of children who have access to school libraries have um, iPhones that they carry around with them or, or mobile phones or internet. I mean, they, um, and, and where do they get their news and information? Seriously, can we have a look at people's points of view on issues and where they get their news and information? Do they read newspapers? What, what cable news? What do they have cable? Blah, blah, blah. Do you ever incorporate that in some of your questioning? Here's why we don't. And because people ask that, the, the Grinnell faculty ask that all the time. And really to do that question justice, it's a whole poll in and of itself. Because you say you get your news from cable news. Well, which station are you talking about? Are you mm -hmm. talking about Fox News? Are you talking about Newsmax? Are you talking about News Nation? What are you talking about MSNBC? So, so it, and some will say they get it from the internet. Well, where exactly on the internet? And then that means people have got to be paying attention when they're reading their their Twitter feed to what the actual source is, and they they often don't know. So no, I don't, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to see a question about where they get their news and information. Okay, okay, we'll, have, any to, of my we'll have to crowd, crowdsource uh, or crowdfund a, a, and commission an Iowa poll. That there you go. There we go. Okay, Mary Ellen Miller, you are next. And Terry Rich, your hand is raised. I don't know if that means you have another question. Okay, <laughs> so Mary Ellen, you're next. And oh my God, the time has flown. We only have a few minutes left. So Mary Ellen, you're up. Yeah, and my, I'm always interested in demographics. That's part of my uh, professional background in epidemiology, but we're an older state. Uh, and you mentioned that you adjust for age. And I'm wondering how that works when we are so top heavy with older. <laughs> there was a report today that uh, the nation's numbers of children is plummeting in this country. So the, how do you adjust and make it reflect the real demographics of Iowa? So the, the good news is, is that we have a census department and the census department publishes their estimates on, on a, at least every two year basis. So we, we create these big impressive spreadsheets that tell us sort of how it is that um, age by sex and 
and keeping track of all of the way that's supposed to be updated on a regular basis. Okay, great. So oh, go ahead. We go, to a, we go to a credible source and, and I'm, our polling firm is not unique that way. That's the way most pollsters do it. So you're saying your, your polling numbers reflect Iowa's top heavy demographic of older people? Once we have weighted the data, yes. Okay, yeah. good to know. And then I'm sure everyone has this question. I was interested when you said that the caller identifies themselves as from the Iowa poll. So many of us have never been polled. Mm -hmm. And of course, when your numbers are so small, 800 or 1,000, I understand that. Um, so is that still a real reflection that so many of us never get asked? So my, my, you know, sly answer is I couldn't have accurate polls if we weren't getting a good cross section of our meaningful universe, it wouldn't be possible. And our, our firm has from the beginning that Nate Silver started handicapping pollsters, we were in the first class of, of polling companies with an A plus average. And, and we have been A plus ever since. There's no other polling firm that does a better job. And, and so that's kind of a, a braggy answer, but um, it just wouldn't be possible. So that, that's what sort of keeps me buoyed because sure, you look at it on paper, you go, it shouldn't be possible to do accurate polling, except it is for now. And part may, of it, that, may it always be so. Well, part of that, Anne, isn't because you don't look at a sample as with the question, how did they do in the past? You, you, you try and gather data points to predict the future caucus goers, et cetera. And I don't know how you do that, but I don't, and I don't know why other people don't do that, but can you talk about that a little bit? I can. So I call it polling backwards versus polling forwards. And not every polling firm does this, but it's not uncommon that a polling firm will create what they call a likely voter model. And they will have done all sorts of regression equations and they figured out that if you voted before and if you know where your polling place is and you're paying attention, that they can combine it in a magic recipe that ends up with how likely a voter you are. And then they take the most, the likeliest of their likely voters and that's who they report out. And I say, well, all of those regression equations were constructed predicting the last election. So you're finding out what the relationship is between demographics and, and behavior in terms of the previous election. So my, somebody said, well, you've got a likely voter model. And I said, well, no, actually, I don't. What I have is an approach that lets the data show me who it is that's likeliest to who are likely voters. And then I, 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 don't, I don't mess around with it. I don't give you extra credit for having voted before. If you tell me you're definitely going to vote, I go with it. Again, if I weren't getting accurate results, I'd change my mind about how to do it. But the famous episode was in the 2008 caucuses where we said that 60% were going to be first-time caucus goers. And everybody else was working with previous caucus goer lists and registered Republicans or, or Democrats or whatever. And the entrance, and they thought, said I was crazy. And the entrance poll said it was going to be 58%. I, those numbers I might not have, I should have them seared in my brain. 
But the, the entrance poll showed that the preposterous finding that 60% were going to their first caucus, it proved up. So that, that kind of is a very powerful lesson in my, in my polling DNA, that trust the electorate and let your, don't get in the way of your data showing you what's going to happen in the future. Richard Bender, you have your hand raised. I don't know if that's from a previous question, but if you do have a question, you need to unmute and you'll have the last question and then Anne will wrap up. Oh, Richard, you're muted. Okay. So, um, Anne, you mentioned that you uh, you wait by uh, census data by age. However, uh, the Iowa turnout levels, as shown by the uh, Secretary of State data, shows a far more dramatic upward shift by age in who votes. I was quite surprised that you don't use the data put out by the Secretary of State as opposed to the Census Bureau on okay. political polling data. So that's a little bit of a more of a wrinkle in how we do election polling. Um, so first of all, the Secretary of State's data are going to be data from the past election. So that, that, that's going to be a red flag for me. Secondly, when we do our final poll and we're only going to report out likely voters, so we're going to hang up on people who say anything other than they will definitely vote. We bother to capture their age and sex and congressional district. So they tell us their county um, and then we can do that. So we have over a thousand people that we've talked to to get their age and sex and county. And we wait that data set, the 1100, however many it is. Now we've got, a, that reflects the general population and we pull out from that, we extract just the likely voters. So if, you're, if the older people are more inclined to say they're definitely voting, they show up in larger numbers than in the general population. So we've, we've figured that one out. Well, Anne, I knew this time would fly. I didn't realize it would fly quite so fast, but we are up against the one hour time commitment. I thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating conversation. I know we could have gone on for, for another hour or more. Um, we are going to go into breakout rooms for any of you who'd like to hang around and meet some of these interesting folks that were on this call with you. We'll do it for about five minutes. And Anne, any final comments? No, it, I, when you asked me to do this, I thought, well, we, you know, you had me on before and I thought everybody kind of got, got to say, but this has been an interesting conversation. The quality of questions is very good. Happy, happy to be here. Great. Thanks. And this will go out to oh, a few thousand other uh, subscribers to the Substack column. So in addition to the 50 plus on the call. Thanks again. Here we go. Small groups. There we go. Mm -hmm.